Section 17 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 3, by James Boswell, Section 17. I could not but wonder at such conduct in the noble Lord, whose own character and just elevation in life, I thought, must have impressed him with all due regard for great abilities and attainments. As the story had been much talked of, and apparently from good authority, I could not but have animadverted upon it in this work. Had it been as was alleged, but from my earnest love of truth, and having found reason to think that there might be a mistake, I presumed to write to his lordship, requesting an explanation, and it is with the sincerest pleasure that I am enabled to assure the world that there is no foundation for it, the fact being that owing to some neglect or accident, Johnson's letter never came to Lord Hawkesbury's hands. I should have thought it strange indeed if that noble lord had undervalued my illustrious friend. But instead of this being the case, his lordship, in the very polite answer with which he was pleased immediately to honour me, thus expresses himself. I have always respected the memory of Dr. Johnson, and admire his writings, and I frequently read many parts of them with pleasure and great improvement. All applications for the royal mercy having failed, Dr. Dodd prepared himself for death, and with a warmth of gratitude wrote to Dr. Johnson as follows. June the 25th, Midnight Accept, thou great and good heart, my earnest and fervent thanks and prayers for all thy benevolent and kind efforts in my behalf. O Dr. Johnson, as I sought your knowledge at an early hour in life, would to heaven I had cultivated the love and acquaintance of so excellent a man. I pray God most sincerely to bless you with the highest transports, the infelt satisfaction of humane and benevolent exertions, and admitted, as I trust I shall be, to the realms of bliss before you, I shall hail your arrival there with transports and rejoice to acknowledge that you was my comforter, my advocate, and my friend. God be ever with you. Dr. Johnson lastly wrote to Dr. Dodd this solemn and soothing letter. To the Reverend Dr. Dodd. Dear Sir, that which is appointed to all men is now coming upon you. Outward circumstances the eyes and the thoughts of men, are below the notice of an immortal being about to stand the trial for eternity before the supreme judge of heaven and earth. Be comforted. Your crime, morally or religiously considered, has no very deep dye of turpitude. It corrupted no man's principles. It attacked no man's life. It involved only a temporary and reparable injury. Of this and all other sins you are earnestly to repent, and may God, who knoweth our frailty, and desireth not our death, 
accept your repentance for the sake of his son jesus christ our lord in requital of those well-intended offices which you are pleased so emphatically to acknowledge let me beg that you make in your devotions one petition for my eternal welfare i am dear sir your affectionate servant sam johnson june the twenty sixth seventeen seventy seven under the copy of this letter i found written in johnson's own hand next day june the twenty seventh he was executed to conclude this interesting episode with an useful application let us now attend to the reflections of johnson at the end of the occasional papers concerning the unfortunate dr dodd such were the last thoughts of a man whom we have seen exulting in popularity and sunk in shame for his reputation which no man can give to himself those who conferred it are to answer of his public misery the means of judging were sufficiently attainable he must be allowed to preach well whose sermons strike his audience with forcible conviction of his life those who thought it consistent with his doctrine did not originally form false notions he was at first what we endeavoured to make others but the world broke down his resolution and he in time ceased to exemplify his own instructions let those who are tempted to his faults tremble at his punishment and those whom he impressed from the pulpit with religious sentiments endeavour to confirm them by considering the regret and self-abhorrence with which he reviewed in prison his deviations from rectitude johnson gave us this evening in his happy discriminative manner a portrait of the late mr fitzherbert of derbyshire there was said he no sparkle no brilliancy in fitzherbert but i never knew a man who was so generally acceptable footnote burke wrote to garrick of fitzherbert you know and love him but i assure you until we can talk some late matters over you even you can have no adequate idea of the worth of that man End of footnote. he made everybody quite easy overpowered nobody by the superiority of his talents made no man think worse of himself by being his rival seemed always to listen did not oblige you to hear much from him and did not oppose what you said everybody liked him but he had no friend as i understand the word nobody with whom he exchanged intimate thoughts footnote I remember a man, writes Mrs. Piozzi, much delighted in by the upper ranks of society, who, upon a trifling embarrassment in his affairs, hanged himself behind the stable door, to the astonishment of all who knew him as the liveliest companion and most agreeable converser breathing. What upon earth, said one at our house, could have made Fitzherbert hang himself? why he's just having a multitude of acquaintance replied dr johnson and ne'er a friend End of footnote. people were willing to think well of everything about him 
a gentleman was making an affected rant as many people do of great feelings about his dear son who was at school near london how anxious he was lest he might be ill and what he would give to see him can't you said fitzherbert take a post-chaise and go to him this to be sure finished the affected man but there was not much in it footnote dr gisborne physician to his majesty's household has obligingly communicated to me a fuller account of this story than had reached dr johnson the affected gentleman was the late john gilbert cooper esq author of a life of socrates and of some poems in dodley's collection mr fitzherbert found him one morning apparently in such violent agitation on account of the indisposition of his son as to seem beyond the power of comfort at length however he exclaimed i'll write an elegy mr fitzherbert being satisfied by this of the sincerity of his emotions slyly said had not you better take a post-chaise and go to see him it was the shrewdness of the insinuation which made the story be circulated boswell malone writes mr cooper was the last of the benevolists or sentimentalists who were much in vogue between seventeen fifty and seventeen sixty and dealt in general admiration of virtue they were all tenderness in words their finer feeling evaporated in the moment of expression for they had no connection with their practice this fashion seemed to have reached paris a few years later madame riccoboni wrote to garrick on may the third seventeen sixty nine dans notre brillante capitale oui dominent les airs et la mode s'attendir c'est moi voir s'affliger c'est le bon temps des moments la bonte la sensibilité la tendre humanité sont devenues la fantaisie universelle en ferait volontaire des malheureux pour goûter la douceur de la plandre however this was circulated as wit for a whole winter and i believe part of a summer too a proof that he was no very witty man he was an instance of the truth of the observation that a man will please more upon the whole by negative qualities than by positive by never offending than by giving a great deal of delight in the first place men hate more steadily than they love and if i have said something to hurt a man once i shall not get the better of this by saying things to please him footnote johnson had felt the truth of this in the case of old mr sheridan End of footnote. tuesday september the sixteenth dr johnson having mentioned to me the extraordinary size and price of some cattle reared by dr taylor i rode out with our host surveyed his farm and was shown one cow which he had sold for a hundred and twenty guineas and another for which he had been offered a hundred and thirty footnote 
Johnson, in his letters from Ashbourne, used to joke about Taylor's cattle. July the 23rd, 1770. I have seen the great bull, and very great he is. I have seen likewise his heir apparent, who promises to inherit all the bulk and all the virtues of his sire. I have seen the man who offered a hundred guineas for the young bull, while he was yet little better than a calf. July the 3rd, 1771. The great bull has no disease but age. I hope in time to be like the great bull, and hope you will be like him too over a hundred years hence. July the 10th, 1771. There has been a man here today to take a farm. After some talk, he went to see the bull and said that he had seen a bigger. Do you think he is likely to get the farm? October the 31st, 1772. Our bulls and cows are all well, but yet we hate the man that had seen the bigger bull. End of footnote. Taylor thus described to me his old schoolfellow and friend Johnson. He is a man of a very clear head, great power of words, and a very gay imagination. But there is no disputing with him. He will not hear you, and having a louder voice than you, must roar you down. In the afternoon I tried to get Dr. Johnson to like the poems of Mr. Hamilton of Bangor, which I had brought with me. I had been much pleased with them at a very early age. The impression still remained on my mind. It was confirmed by the opinion of my friend, the Honourable Andrew Erskine, himself both a good poet and a good critic, who thought Hamilton as true a poet as ever wrote, and that his not having fame was unaccountable. Johnson, upon repeated occasions while I was at Ashbourne, talked slightingly of Hamilton. He said there was no power of thinking in his verses, nothing that strikes one, nothing better than what you generally find in magazines, and that the highest praise they deserved was that they were very well for a gentleman to hand about among his friends. He said, the imitation of ne sit ancile tibi amor, and etc., was too solemn. He read part of it at the beginning. He read the beautiful, pathetic song, Ah, the poor shepherd's mournful tale, and did not seem to give attention to what I had been used to think tender, elegant strains, but laughed at the rhyme. In Scott's pronunciation, wishes and blushes, reading washes, and there he stopped. Footnote. The tender glance, the reddening cheek, o'erspread with rising blushes, a thousand various ways they speak, a thousand various wishes. Hamilton's Poems End of footnote He owned that the epitaph on Lord Newhall was pretty well done. He read the inscription in a summer-house, and a little of the imitations of Horace's epistles, but said he found nothing to make him desire to read on. When I urged that there were some good poetical passages in the book, where, said he, 
will you find so large a collection without some i thought the description of winter might obtain his approbation see winter from the frozen north drives his iron chariot forth his grisly hand in icy chains fair tweeders silver flood constrains and etc he asked why an iron chariot and said icy chains was an old image footnote thompson in the seasons winter describes how the ocean by the boundless frost is many a fathom to the bottom chained speaking of a thaw he says the river swells of bonds impatient End of footnote. i was struck with the uncertainty of taste and somewhat sorry that a poet whom i had long read with fondness was not approved by dr johnson i comforted myself with thinking that the beauties were too delicate for his robust perceptions garrick maintained that he had not a taste for the finest productions of genius but i was sensible that when he took the trouble to analyse critically he generally convinced us that he was right in the evening the reverend mr seward of lichfield who was passing through ashbourne on his way home drank tea with us johnson described him thus sir his ambition is to be a fine talker so he goes to buxton and such places where he may find companies to listen to him and sir he is valetudinarian one of those who are always mending themselves i do not know a more disagreeable character than a valetudinarian who thinks he may do any thing that is for his ease and indulges himself in the grossest freedoms sir he brings himself to the state of a hog in a sty footnote johnson wrote of pope the indulgence and accommodation which his sickness required had taught him all the unpleasing and unsocial qualities of a valetudinary man End of footnote. dr taylor's nose happening to bleed he said it was because he had omitted to have himself blooded four days after a quarter of a year's interval dr johnson who was a great dabbler in physic footnote when he was ill of a fever he wrote to mrs thrale the doctor was with me again to-day and we both think the fever quite gone i believe it was not an intermittent for i took of my own head physic yesterday and celsus says it seems that if a cathartic be taken the fit will return certo certius i would bear something rather than celsus should be detected in an error but i say it was a febris continua and had a regular crisis End of footnote. disapproved much of periodical bleeding footnote johnson must have shortened his life by the bleedings that he underwent how many they were cannot be known for no doubt he was often bled when he has left no record of it the following however i have noted i do not know that he was bled more than most people of his time 
Dr. Taylor, it should seem, underwent the operation every quarter. December 1755, thrice 54 ounces. January 1761, once. April 1770, cupped. Winter of 1772, three, three times. May 1773, two copious bleedings. 1774, times not mentioned, 36 ounces. January 1777, three bleedings, 22 ounces in first two. January 1780, once. June 1780, times not mentioned. January and February 1782, thrice 50 ounces. May 1782, at least once. Yet he wrote to Mrs. Thrale, I am of the chymical sect, which holds phlebotomy in abhorrence. Oh, why? asks Wesley who was as strongly opposed to bleeding as he was fond of poulticing. Will physicians play with the lives of their patients? Do not others, as well as old Dr. Coburn, know that no end is answered by bleeding in a pleurisy, which may not be much better answered without it? Dr. Shane, writes Pope, was of Mr. Cheseldon's opinion, that bleeding might be frequently repeated with safety, for he advised me to take four or five ounces every full moon. End of footnote. For, said he, you accustom yourself to an evacuation which nature cannot perform of herself, and therefore she cannot help you, should you from forgetfulness or any other cause omit it, so you may be suddenly suffocated. You may accustom yourself to other periodical evacuations, because, should you omit them, nature can supply the omission, but nature cannot open a vein to blood you. I do not like to take an emetic, said Dr. Taylor, for fear of breaking some small vessels. Poe, said Johnson, if you have so many things that will break, you had better break your neck at once, and there is an end on it. You will break no small vessels, blowing with high derision. I mentioned to Dr. Johnson that David Hume's persisting in his infidelity when he was dying shocked me much. Johnson, why should it shock you, sir? Hume owned he had never read the New Testament with attention. Here then was a man who had been at no pains to inquire into the truth of religion, and had continually turned his mind the other way, it was not to be expected that the prospect of death would alter his way of thinking, unless God should send an angel to set him right. I said I had reason to believe that the thought of annihilation gave Hume no pain. Johnson, it was not so, sir. Footnote it is the heaviest stone that melancholy can throw at a man, to tell him he is at the end of his nature. Sir Thomas Brown. End of footnote. He had a vanity in being thought easy. It is more probable that he should assume an appearance of ease than that so very improbable a thing should be, 
as a man not afraid of going as in spite of his delusive theory he cannot be sure but he may go into an unknown state and not being uneasy at leaving all he knew and you are to consider that upon his own principle of annihilation he had no motive to speak the truth the horror of death which i had always observed in dr johnson appeared strong to-night i ventured to tell him that i had been for moments in my life not afraid of death therefore i could suppose another man in that state of mind for a considerable space of time he said he never had a moment in which death was not terrible to him. Footnote. In the last number of The Idler, Johnson says, There are few things not purely evil of which we can say without some emotion of uneasiness. This is the last. The secret horror of the last is inseparable from a thinking being whose life is limited and to whom death is dreadful. End of footnote. He added that it had been observed that scarce any man dies in public, but with apparent resolution, from that desire of praise which never quits us. I said Dr. Dodd seemed to be willing to die, and full of hopes of happiness. Sir, said he, Dr. Dodd would have given both his hands and both his legs to have lived. The better a man is, the more afraid he is of death, having a clearer view of infinite purity. He owned that our being in an unhappy uncertainty as to our salvation was mysterious, and said, Ah, we must wait till we are in another state of being to have many things explained to us. Even the powerful mind of Johnson seemed foiled by futurity but i thought that the gloom of uncertainty in solemn religious speculation being mingled with hope was yet more consolatory than the emptiness of infidelity a man can live in thick air but perishes in an exhausted receiver dr johnson was much pleased with a remark which i told him was made to me by general paoli that it is impossible not to be afraid of death and that those who at the time of dying are not afraid are not thinking of death but of applause or something else which keeps death out of their sight so that all men are equally afraid of death when they see it only some have a power of turning their sight away from it better than others footnote bacon in his essay on death says it is worthy the observing that there is no passion in the mind of man so weak but it mates and masters the fear of death and therefore death is no such terrible enemy when a man hath so many attendants about him that can win the combat of him he says non invenias inter humanos affetum tam pusillum qui si intendato praulo vehementius non mortis metum superet end of footnote on wednesday september the seventeenth dr butter physician at derby drank tea with us 
and it was settled that dr johnson and i should go on friday and dine with him johnson said i'm glad of this he seemed weary of the uniformity of life at dr taylor's talking of biography i said in writing a life a man's peculiarities should be mentioned because they mark his character johnson sir there is no doubt as to peculiarities the question is whether a man's vices should be mentioned for instance whether it should be mentioned that addison and parnell drank too freely for people will probably more easily indulge in drinking from knowing this so that more ill may be done by the example than good by telling the whole truth here was an instance of his varying from himself in talk for when lord hales and he sat one morning calmly conversing in my house at edinburgh i well remember that dr johnson maintained that if a man is to write a panegyric he may keep vices out of sight but if he professes to write a life he must represent it really as it was and when i objected to the danger of telling that parnell drank to excess he said that it would produce an instructive caution to avoid drinking when it was seen that even the learning and genius of parnell could be debased by it and in the hebrides he maintained as appears from my journal that a man's intimate friends should mention his faults if he writes in his life footnote in the life of addison he says the necessity of complying with times and of sparing persons is the great impediment of biography history may be formed from permanent monuments and records but lives can only be written from personal knowledge which is growing every day less and in a short time is lost for ever what is known can seldom be immediately told and when it might be told it is no longer known the delicate features of the mind the nice discriminations of character and the minute peculiarities of conduct are soon obliterated and it is surely better that caprice obstinacy frolic and folly however they might delight in the description should be silently forgotten than that by wanton merriment and unseasonable detection a pang should be given to a widow a daughter a brother or a friend as the process of these narratives is now bringing me among my contemporaries i begin to feel myself walking upon ashes under which the fire is not extinguished and coming to the time of which it will be proper rather to say nothing that is false than all that is true End of footnote. he had this evening partly i suppose from the spirit of contradiction to his whig friend a violent argument with dr taylor as to the inclinations of the people of england at this time towards the royal family of stuart he grew so outrageous as to say that if england were fairly polled the present king would be sent away to-night and his adherents hanged to-morrow taylor who was as violent a whig as johnson was a tory was roused by this to a pitch of bellowing 
he denied loudly what johnson said and maintained that there was an abhorrence against the stuart family though he admitted that the people were not much attached to the present king footnote dr taylor was very ready to make this admission because the party with which he was connected was not in power there was then some truth in it owing to the pertinacity of factious clamour had he lived now it would have been impossible for him to deny that his majesty possesses the warmest affection of his people boswell end of footnote end of section seventeen